Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Grief has this tendency to make us tongue-tied. It has this strangled quality. So after years of self-absorption, Tom realises that he still loves his wife, that he's always loved her, but it's too late to tell her. We know of Thomas Hardy, extraordinary novelist and poet, but how much do we know the man himself? Hardy had a complex and complicated marriage. It wasn't until his wife, Emma Gifford's death, that he really understood the role he played in fracturing their relationship. Her death took a toll on Hardy, and after reading and later burning her personal diaries, he was a changed man. Why Emma's diaries had such an impact on him, though, we don't know. As I say, he burned them. In her new book, The Chosen, Elizabeth Lowry tries to fill in the gaps, and what a job she's done. Through extensive research and some very good best guesswork, she raises the diaries from the ashes to bring Emma's story back to life. I am delighted to say she's my guest today. Chapter 1. The Diaries. The beginning of The Chosen takes us on what at first seems like a very familiar post-death journey, preparing the body, preparing for the funeral. But then it shifts suddenly and dramatically when Hardy discovers the diaries. We know from the sheer act of him burning them that Hardy must have been hit hard by the words inside. And now, even if fictionalised, for the first time we get to know why they held such power over him. I found it deeply uncomfortable to read these segments, almost like I was a voyeur, because Hardy isn't just prying, he's learning things about himself and their relationship that would tear his world apart. So what inspired Elizabeth to revive this long-lost story? You know, I was thinking a lot about marriage and the writing life and how the two are supposed to coexist. On the one hand, you've agreed to share your life and your days with another human being. And on the other, you're committed to holding yourself up in your study for hours on end, ignoring them, writing about people and things that don't exist. And I sort of wondered, you know, don't they mind? And the answer is, well, of course they do eventually. (laughs) And I've read and I've reread Hardy's novels and poems for a long, long time. And the poetry he wrote to Emma, his first wife after her death, in November 1912, I think is just absolutely astonishing and probably unrivaled in English literature as love poetry. Just in the degree of its regret um, and self-blame. And I thought there was a, a sort of a, a puzzle here that had to be answered because that marriage, the marriage that Hardy made with Emma Gifford when they were about um, in the mid-30s, had begun with such high hopes. And I wondered, you know, what how did it all go so wrong? There, was, there seemed to be a puzzle here that I had to answer. And I wanted to, to sort of probe how she might have felt as he became more successful, as he became really a sort of world figure, the Thomas Hardy we all, we all read and know today, really at the expense of the marriage, um, you know, not too happy, I imagine. So that was sort of the context for starting to write the book. Could you just take us on a journey of how did you approach the exercise that you set yourself because it would be one thing for me to write in my study as you say away from my away from my beloved partner and recreate something that or create something that was fictional right but you're doing that with a person that existed who did keep this record how did you approach that exercise 
I did feel the responsibility of that. You are aware that you're writing about people who existed, even though they're no longer alive, to offer an opinion on what you're doing with, with their lives. And reconstructing those diaries was the main challenge of the novel. It really was the most difficult part of writing it. Um, and as you say, we know they existed, we know they were real, because Florence Dugdale, who was Hardy's mistress um, at the time of Emma's death and would later become his second wife, mentions them. He, she mentions Hibbs finding them in two letters which she wrote in 1913, and she mentions his reaction. She refers to those diabolical diaries and how devastated he was. So I had to rely on the surviving letters, some of Emma's surviving letters, which aren't very many. They've been edited by Michael Milgate, together with Florence's letters too. And on contemporary accounts of how she sounded, the sorts of things she'd say, impressions of her left to us by people who knew the couple. But that was tricky. It was really tricky because she aroused some hostility in Hardy's friends and family, who often found her rambling and fanciful. And, and there was all sorts of speculation, not terribly helpful, I think, that she might have been mentally unwell towards the end of her life, which has sort of been the standard version of her, which has come down. And I wanted, as you say, to create a convincing inner life for her. But of course, I couldn't have her appearing in 1912, in the December, in the month in which most of the novel is set, because of course, she dies at the very, at the very outset of the book. So there was a technical challenge here, there was a formal challenge. So she had to speak indirectly, and yet with immediacy, and, and in a way that the diary is the best vehicle for that, because diaries are immediate, they are personal, they are unfiltered very often. So the diary format presented this wonderful opportunity to have her speak and to hold the stage. At one point, she complains to her diary that nobody wants to hear her voice, that they're only listening to her famous husband. So there was a chance to redress that balance. And I really had to invent when writing the diaries. I, I really had to make things up. And I, I, I had to be careful, I suppose, to take her seriously, to make her seem fey, sometimes desperate, sometimes, as we know that she could be in life from her reported conversation, but not foolish not mentally unbalanced. I mean, she was no fool. And she plainly got the measure of her husband's drive, his ambition, his sheer creative will. And I also thought it would be far more interesting, a far more interesting alternative in terms of, of the plot and the relationships between the characters if she were not mad in inverted commas, but rather just rejected and avoided by Hardy. You know, if, if she was a woman who was disappointed and angry and frustrated, and often lonely, rather than assigning some sort of easy sort of mental imbalance to her. So there were all those thoughts in my mind when I was trying to find a voice for her, trying to remain true to what we know of her, the little fragments that are left of her in her writing, but trying to fill in the gaps and to offer a motivation for her, for her anger and for her resentment, and to make it seem plausible as well. When I was reading the novel, particularly the diary extracts, I was thinking about whether she had written these with a view that they would ever be made public, whether they would ever be read by another person. And, and it was an interesting reflection, because if you are writing for yourself and capturing 
your private thoughts with a view that they will never be made public, then there is a freedom and a democracy to what you are going to write. If you know that other people are going to read them, that might influence what you write, how you write, for good or bad, I, I don't know. But there is, there is a particular brutality about the directness of her diary entries as you have recreated them. Yes. Did you think about that? Did you think about whether she would have written for, for other people to read them or whether it was just for her? Absolutely. That's a key question in the book, a sort of key plot point as well. She leaves behind two manuscripts. She leaves behind her diaries, which are titled as they were in life, What I Think of My Husband. And they're very hard hitting and they're unfiltered because she is writing for herself and she's giving herself the freedom to say what she really feels and has never said. And I believe that she probably didn't mean anyone to read these. Um, of course, she died very suddenly. She didn't expect to die when she did. And in the book, I imagine her really coming full circle towards the end of, of the diary entries and, and deciding that she's going to destroy them. And then she leaves behind another manuscript, which is called Some Recollections, which is a much more public document in which she's speaking in a very different voice. Again, she sounds lively and fresh and, and, and sort of you know energetic and, and whimsical and all those things, but she's writing about her childhood and how she met Hardy and their early courtship. And I imagine her making a gift to him of this document in the book or being about to make a gift of this document to him in the book. And of course, um, that gesture is derailed because they, they launch into this very vicious argument, which turns out terribly sadly to be the last real conversation they have while well, she's still alive. And then she doesn't destroy the diary. She dies the next morning. She doesn't destroy the diaries and she never gets a chance to give him this rather tender set of recollections. So all those questions were in my mind, what would she have shown? What would she not have shown? And of course we don't know. Um, so I had to invent those motivations as well. Chapter two, Max Gate. Hardy spends much of the book in what seems like a weird out of body experience emotions happening within him rather than being felt by him. In one particular scene, he's attempting to prepare Emma's body for the funeral and is overcome with tears that pour out of him. Yet he's not really aware of it. There's something suffocatingly claustrophobic about existing with him in these spaces. One such space he inhabits while reading these diaries is the house that he designed, Max Gate. Built by members of his family, he and Emma moved to Maxgate in 1885. For many reasons, this house is an emotional tether for Hardy, and in the book it becomes a character in its own right. The space, the silence, the loneliness, everything that's not being said, it all becomes part of the narrative. It's a really important part of the narrative. I think you know buildings are very important to me, there seems to be an emotionally significant building in each of the three books I've written. And there was Moore House in the Bellini Madonna and the Charlestown Asylum for the Insane in Dark Water. And of course, now in The Chosen, there's Max Gate. I think it was Jung who, who tells us that, you know, building a house is in some sense a symbol, a metaphor for the construction of, of a self. And perhaps that idea was in my mind. I think there's that passage in Memories, Dreams and Reflections by Jung where he describes building his holiday house on the lakes of, on, on Lake Zurich. And he explains that the towers and the annexes represent parts of his psyche. And 
it's very much the case with Max Gate in The Chosen as well. Of course, Hardy trained as an architect. There was that fact, which I made use of. And he built Max Gate to his own design. And there's a sense in the book that the house really stands for him, stands for his psyche. So the house is an externalization of his aspirations, of what's important to him. And the interesting thing is, and I've been there, I've been to the house many, many times now, it's is that it's not a terribly successful or attractive house, perhaps. <laughs> you know, it, it looks as if it ought to be. And then you sort of walk around it and you find, you know, it was built for comfort rather than to impress. But actually, it's not very comfortable. The result is sort of weirdly lumpen and uncomfortable. The rooms are ever so slightly too small. There's no symmetry. And during Hardy's life, it was damp, it was cold. And in the novel, Tom is aware of these failings. He's aware that it isn't really a successful big house of the kind that he's aspiring to, or a sort of homey cottage, like the one that he grew up in, in higher Bockhampton. And there's a parallel also between the house itself and the books he's trying to build, the, the act of creation. So he's created a house, he's created an external expression of himself, but he's also trying to do exactly that through his writing. And I, I tried to explore this theme a little more. There's a scene between him and one of his friends, Edmund Goss, who are the critic and poet, while, he's, while Tom is struggling to write the book that's going to become Tess of the D'Urbervilles. And Goss tells Tom that he finds his novels uncomfortable to dwell in. There was quite a sort of deliberate invention there. Um, as far as I know, Goss never said anything of the kind, although he was critical of Hardy sometimes. And he tells him that his writing has become lopsided. So... I just wanted to sort of remind the reader that the house is also, of course, the building. Max Gate is also, you know, what Henry James calls the house of fiction, too. It's a symbol for that as well. And Tom is very aware that writing itself is a construction. It's a facade. It's an illusion. Um, so those ideas were all in my mind that the house should play a very, very important part in the book. And I was trying, I suppose I was sort of trying to take a leaf out of Hardy's book here as a writer, because he's often tries, I think, in his in his own fiction to explore ideas that go beyond sort of the, the normal conventions of the realistic novel. And he does use setting. He does use gothic descriptions, hints of psychic supernatural forces and um, place very effectively to create mood, to create atmosphere. So using the house, the sort of haunted house, the house of fiction as a symbol for his own psyche seemed to be quite fitting and quite Hardy-esque as well. When we were preparing for this conversation, I, I sent you an email and I gasped when I read the opening of your book because you talk about an afternoon in November and my favourite Hardy book is The Return of the Native. And I will paraphrase because I will get this wrong. I'm, I'm trying to quote from the opening, but it begins with a Saturday afternoon in November was rapidly approaching twilight when the vast tract of unenclosed wild known as Egdon Heath embrowned itself moment by moment. Egdon Heath is a place, but is a character in The Return of the Native, that almost gothic, haunting, barren landscape that, as we discover, keeps secrets. There are, there are literal things buried beneath it. it it's very, it's very hardy. It's very... It's very gothic, even in Tess of the D'Urbervilles. You know, you could say the same thing about about all of his work, and I'm, and I really felt that with Max Gate, I really felt as if the failings of the construction of the building were being 
highlighted through the diaries. You know, you felt the failure even more, didn't you? Well, yes, thank you for saying that. I, th I think that was that was my intention. You know, Hardy didn't theorize much about the craft of writing, but it was interesting when I when I was um, when I was reading his notebooks, he, he made an entry round about the time that he was writing Tess in 1890 that summer. You know, when he talks about this, he says that, you know, art, art is a, a disproportioning. He said it's a, a distortion, a throwing out of proportion. And again, I, I sort of heard the architectural metaphor there. And he said, the reason you do this is to show more clearly the features that matter. So that idea was also in my mind, you know, the exaggeration, the foregrounding of certain elements, the sort of making of something that was perhaps lopsided in the way that the house is lopsided in life. That was an important way of constructing the book when I when I was working on it. Yeah. In, in terms of construction, every choice we make as writers is an important one. And you chose, and I don't know whether you had this in mind from the very beginning, but your choice of the present tense is a fascinating one. And I remember reading an interview with Hilary Mantel in which this, this question comes up, you know, why have you written Wolf Hall in the present tense? And, they, and her answer is along the lines of, you know, we know that he married six times. We know Henry VIII married six times. But if you were living through it, even when he got to marriage number four, you could not have predicted that he would potentially end up. So even though we know what happens to Thomas Hardy, the use of the present tense gives your story such an immediacy. It's not us looking back. It's us. And this is why I, this is why I keep coming back to Max Gate and the claustrophobia is that I'm going through this as he is. I'm not, yes. you've not distanced me. You've put me in the room. Was that a deliberate choice, Elizabeth? Absolutely. That was, that was entirely conscious. Time is a really important theme in the novel. Time, in a way, is a, is a driving force. It's a shaping force. And I wanted to create the sense of the diurnal rhythms that we're all bound by, or sort of trapped in, in the way that he is trapped in the house. And then, I suppose, the larger framework of the human generations. We have a sense of his family, of, of, of his ancestry. And then there's also sort of hinting at a larger historical geological time behind that. And then there is the way that time can seem to stop when we're grieving. So time is arrested. And I thought that the present tense was, a, was one way of suggesting that sense of stasis, of things stopping and starting, of things happening and unfolding and yet also stalling. I wanted to, so I suppose, find a way of representing the way in which we experience time differently at different points, depending on what's happening to us. And it seemed that by launching the reader into Tom's immediate presence, sort of in medias res, right in the middle of things, which is a, a present that at, at times becomes the past, while still remaining immediate to him, seemed to be the best way of doing this. And to suggest that sort of frozen state of grief where time becomes elastic, where it stops, where it pulls, where it sort of where it jerks forward and then there's no progress again. So that was a very deliberate choice, yes. And I think it makes the it makes the impact of the diaries even starker because the diaries really are the only nod to the past because they are a snapshot of Emma as she was when she was writing them. And I was just fascinated, you know, by it because of the immediacy of the grief. And on on that everything that we know about Hardy and the relationship he had with his mistress would have suggested that he would have leapt into that relationship more publicly, almost, you know, after a suitable amount of time had passed. 
but he doesn't. It's so surprising. He doesn't do the thing you think he's going to. He he believes conclusively that his life as a writer is now over uh, and, and is almost stuck. He becomes a very different version of himself when everything would have suggested that he would have, he and Florence would have just had this public relationship. Is that right? Yes, I suppose, I suppose he himself was astonished by the grief he felt and the depth of his regret and remorse. You talked a moment ago about the return of the native and the opening sort of having an echo in the book and the opening of the book, of there being an echo of it there. I suppose, you know, the most obvious text, obviously, that underpins the book is Hardy's poems of 1912 to 1913. Those are the poems that he wrote in the immediate aftermath of Emma's death. And the question I wanted to answer, I suppose, as well as asking, you know, what went wrong between them was, how did that act of creation uh, sort of begin? You know, what, what brought him to the point where he began to write those poems? Because they are so astonishing. And I sort of play, I play with um, the epigraph to those poems a little bit in the book. It's, it's Hardy took his epigraph from Virgil, from the Aeneid. The epigraph is Veteris Vestigia Flammae, the embers of an old fire. This is from the passage in book six of the Aeneid, where Aeneas travels to the underworld and he meets the ghost of Dido, whom he loved but deserted in life. And I, I wanted to create a sense in the book of, of Tom, really, as Aeneas, returning to the underworld in search of Emma's ghost. And he has to start to come to terms with his own share in the failure of the marriage. And of course, in the book, he has a recurring dream where he stands like Aeneas on the banks of the Acheron, one of the rivers in Hades, the kingdom of the dead. So that was a sort of, I suppose, the main underpinning text in the book where he has to time travel, going back to the idea of time again, to travel between the past and the present, the realms of the living and the dead, to achieve some kind of resolution, or at least to be able to start writing again, because grief has stalled him, grief has stopped him, and he believes that he has in some sense lost himself, his self has been vacated. So the question for me was, you know, how does he start to write again? What is it that, that gives him that impetus? And at the very end of the book, we see him beginning to write the poem that will become the voice, one of the poems of 1912 to 1913. And as he does so, you know, time can move again, the future can can begin again, but it can't do so until that point. So the, the, the entire book is a working out, a working through of the aftermath of grief, the immediate aftermath, the stasis, the loss of self, um, the need to come to terms and to to gain some degree of acceptance of the fact of death. Chapter 3. A Resurrected Man There is a very real sense that Hardy's not just grieving Emma. He has to learn to let go of every aspect of the relationship, and that includes his former life. And through the book, you see him resurrect himself. It's almost as if to become a new writer, he has to let go of the writer that he was. The poetry he produced following Emma's death is astonishing, really, because you become convinced while reading the book that this is a man who will never write again. But of course, that man doesn't. And just as Hardy changes throughout the book, so does our understanding of him. This was especially the case for Elizabeth, who began to think of the couple very differently while uncovering and recreating their stories. You know, the thing is that the version of Hardy's life that's come down to us was so carefully curated by Hardy himself. 
because he destroyed most of, of his youthful correspondence, photographs, the letters that Emma wrote to him during their courtship. You know, he even ghost wrote his own biography, which was published after his death under the name of Florence, under Florence's name. And he never talked about his marriage. So, you know, in, in researching their relationship, Emma's relationship with Hardy, um, you come up against this cavernous silence about his early life and, and about his private life. And then you, you really do go back to, to the writing itself, to the poetry, I think in this case, for clues. So my views of them did change. It's interesting, um, they, they seem to have had a, a fairly happy two years in a little Dorset town called Sturminster Newton, which he later remembered as an idyll. And I, I try in, in the novel to imagine, you know, what that was like, that period where they seemed to to work together or she supported him as his copyist and she wrote to his dictation sometimes. And um, you see them in the book at Sturminster and they seem fairly happy. But again, I, I wanted to suggest that even here, you know, he's paying very little attention to laying any sort of foundation for a real and a mutually satisfying marriage. And I wanted to address the issue of their childlessness as well, which becomes a sort of focal point, a kind of agonising focal point for Emma in the book. So there are all these mysteries, these these puzzles that had to be answered with very little source material, really, to to help you, to steer you on the way. And then these enormously resource, remorseful poems, which he's left us, which followed after her death. So by piecing these together, you can sort of get a shifting picture of, of, of that relationship. And, and my views of them did change. Um, I think I, I sort of saw the depths of sadness in that relationship the more I read read about it and read into it. The reason I ask is because your restraint in your writing is quite staggering. And I was struck by how careful you were to leave me with the silence and to leave me with my own thoughts of what Hardy was going through. Hardy must have, we know he does because we see it, he will have started to judge himself and perhaps not in a favorable light. You don't do that. You allow him to explore the person that he's been rather than impose your view of what he's done. And it's almost, at times like these, you rarely need other people to tell you you've done something wrong, right? You know you've done something wrong. And, and, and your restraint, Elizabeth, was absolutely staggering. How important was it for you to allow the reader to make their own conclusions and feel their own judgment or experience, you know, that from, from their own perspective rather than from having it imposed on you? How important was that for you? Oh, hugely important. You've, you've actually expressed the main intention behind the book really well. I wanted to write a book in which what isn't said speaks as loudly as what is said. At one point in the book, Tom reflects, he's writing a letter to Edmund Goss, and he says, so much went unspoken between Emma and me. And then he says, I want to get away from whatever words we used and nearer to what we really meant. So this really is a book about silence, uh, what isn't said between two people when it should have been and now can't be said. And um, I also think, you know, grief has this this tendency to make us tongue-tied. It has this strangled quality. So, you know, too, too late, really, as he thinks, after years of self-absorption, he realises, Tom realises that he, that he still loves his wife, that he's always loved her, but it's too late to tell her, and that he was at fault. 
you know, that he was also at fault in the in the sort of souring of the marriage. But I, I wanted the reader to arrive at this conclusion themselves. I didn't want to judge my characters or to steer that conclusion too much. And I think I was taking a hint from Hardy himself here again. You know, in his novels, there are these concentrated character revelations at moments of crisis. And I wanted really to imitate that, I suppose, in the way that The Chosen proceeds through the series of moments of vision or insight, to borrow a, a title from one of Hardy's volumes of poetry, where he gains greater insight, a better vision of his role in, in what happened. It's a staggering achievement, the research, the way you've approached it. You can tell that there has been a huge amount of work gone into this. The Chosen is an absolutely stunning novel. Elizabeth Lowry, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Elizabeth Lowry for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? When creating fictionalised portrayals of real stories, you don't have to get everything right. While your investigative skills need to be on point and while you should stay true to the characters, feel at liberty to draw conclusions or maybe use best guesswork. People's lives are often more interesting than you could ever possibly imagine and you may end up closer to reality than you think. Elizabeth quotes Carl Jung, Building a house is a symbol of building a self. Think of the homes in your stories as emotional tethers. Consider the influence and sway a house can hold over your characters. How are they moulded by the space they inhabit? When you're drawing on the past, try using the present tense. It can be a powerful tool to bring the story right into the here and now. And finally, let your characters exist in a world without your judgment. You don't always need to impose your view or opinion on your characters. Let your audience decide what's right and wrong. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.